The reading today is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him. And suddenly angels came and waited on him. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The uh, fabled blues guitarist... Robert Johnson died in 1938, aged only 27. After a troubled life wandering the Mississippi wilderness, eking out a living as an itinerant musician. Probably his most famous song is the brilliant Sweet Home Chicago, a song I know best in its incarnation as performed by the Blues Brothers. But more notorious is his song Crossroad Blues, which in many ways came to define his mythology. The song opens with him on his knees at a crossroads, pleading for salvation. But as the sun sets and no help arrives, he says of himself, I believe to my soul now, poor Bob is sinking down. And so the myth began of how poor Bob Johnson met the devil at a crossroads and sold his soul in exchange for his supposedly supernatural abilities on the guitar. It's a bargain struck in the grand tradition of the Germanic Faust legend, whose own pact with the devil cost him his soul in exchange for unlimited pleasure and power. It's a myth that 
uh, comes out in uh, one of my other favourite movies, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, actually, th there's a whole thesis to be written on, on how Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? is a tribute to the Blues Brothers, but that, that's a story for another day. But in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? they meet uh, the young man at the crossroads who's just sold his soul to the devil in exchange for his guitar playing. And it's definitely a nod at this, uh, the, the story about Bob Johnson. The human story from Adam and Eve onwards is littered with examples of those who have exchanged their own integrity for knowledge, power or success. Maybe you know someone, maybe you can think of someone, maybe you've tried to do that yourself. Many have. And so we come to the fateful meeting between Jesus and the devil at the crossroads of history. It was, I suppose, the ultimate moment of temptation. The offer of unlimited power and influence, of wealth and adoration to use as Jesus sees fit. Who in their right minds would refuse such a deal? I wonder if you ever have those moments when you think to yourself, if I ruled the world, things would be very different. I know I do. In fact, I've got my little list of executive orders ready to be issued immediately should the opportunity arise. Uh, executive order number one, all doors to public restrooms must henceforth open outwards, specifically so that I don't have to pull the handle on my way out with my clean hands. Anyway, you get it. Executive order number two, all tables in restaurants and pubs must henceforth have only three evenly spaced legs because then, according to the milking stool principle, I will never have to sit at a wobbly table ever again. Now, I admit I may not be setting my sights that high here, but I thought I'd start with some easy wins before addressing some of the more intractable problems in the in-tray. I mean, I've not quite got my five that Rishi Sunak has set himself to use his unlimited power on this year, but you know, start with some wins. What would you do, I wonder, if you ruled the world? Would you end war, abolish poverty, solve climate change? I'm sure all of us are so very aware that in so many ways, from the global to the trivial, the world is not the way the world should be. And the question then remains of what to do about this. How do you change the world? I'm not aware that any of us anytime soon is going to be granted absolute executive power. So even my daydreams about doors and tables are frankly an irrelevance, let alone our grander hopes for addressing the world's problems. But the fact remains that I'm still one of those people who wants to leave the world better or at least not worse than when I arrived. So how do we change the world for good? Well, I think that the story of Jesus and the devil in the wilderness perhaps offers us an insight here. And I think it's this. Seizing absolute power is not, in the end, the answer. We may make our Faustian bargains, we may even strike the ultimate deal with the devil, become the ultimate guitar player. Hasn't worked for me. 
rise to a position of supreme power. But the cost to our soul will always rob that power of its capacity to change the world for good because the power will have come from the wrong place. Power born of ambition will never truly serve the common good. There is an old adage that those who want to be politicians are precisely the people who shouldn't be. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think every politician is cynical. I think many of them are good and trying to do a good job. But you get the point, don't you? And so when Jesus was offered his moment of power, adoration, whatever it was he wanted to do, he could have done it. He declined Satan's offer. All the kingdoms of the world were there for him to rule over. And he said no, because he knew the terrible price that such power would exact. But there's more wisdom on offer here than just the rejection of imposed imperial power. Jesus didn't just decline to be the next emperor. Because in his rejection of the devil and this temptation, Jesus rewrote the script of how power can be used to effect change in the world. Jesus moves the power game away from the desire to have power over people, power over things, power over structures and systems and authorities. Jesus moved away from power over to a new place of seeking to share power with. In that moment of the temptations, Jesus moves power over to power with. It turns out that the alternative to taking power over others is not them having power over you. This is not some zero-sum game where there are just winners and losers. Rather, there emerges in the life of Jesus a new way, and it is the way of power shared, the way of power through collaboration, power through community, the empowering of the disempowered and the raising up of the weak consistently lie at the heart of the ministry of Jesus. And far from offering an example of unalloyed weakness, Jesus' life creates the possibility of a new way of being human, where the rules of using power to effect change in the world are fundamentally rewritten. Until this moment, power over others appeared to be the only option. How do you fight the Roman Empire? You rebel against it and you try and overthrow it. You take power over the oppressor. We all know that story. But Jesus tells his followers to work with him to expose the lie of the false narratives which societies construct for themselves. You see, power over others is Satan's great deception. We are deceived if we come to believe that our desires are God's desires and that in doing our will, we are doing God's will. Such distortion of desire will always open the door to hell because it displaces God from the center of creation, replacing him with an idol made in our own image through which we exercise power over others and claim that we're doing God's will as we do it. Jesus knew that it was relational power, power with 
that will be the game changer as well as the world changer. Because power held in relationship is never about me and my desires. It is always about the other. Selfless power, as seen in the life of Jesus, is what makes the real difference in the world. And Jesus consistently gave power away, seeking to build others up rather than asking them to worship him. Uh, one of my favourite singers who I'm going to go and see perform in a couple of weeks is the uh, Christian, well, sort of post-Christian uh, folk singer, Martin Joseph. Started out as a good Baptist and still has echoes of his church background. And he was asked a few years ago to write a song um, for the, uh, one of the anniversaries of the founding of the NHS. And he picked, uh, wrote a song about the life of, of Nye Bevan, who, who founded the NHS. And one of the, one of the lines uh, for, in the song is a quote from Nye Bevan. The purpose of power is to give it away. It's not about taking power over. It's about building power with. Jesus consistently in his ministry gives away power. And so the church that he calls into being, and that's you and me, is, or at least should be, the supreme example of the collaborative community of power sharing, against which not even hell itself can triumph. Jesus does not want to change the world on his own. He wants to do so in relationship with others, in relationship with us. And so it seems to me that those who follow Jesus should follow this example. The Church of Christ should never seek to take power over others. No matter how pure we may think our motives may be. And I would suggest that those times where Christianity has done its deals with power to get its message heard more widely have consistently resulted in a dilution of the radical message of the one who came to expose the lure of power over others for the insidious lie that it is. I do not think we should have a state church. I do not think we should have bishops in the House of Lords. I do not think the church should seek to take and grasp power by doing its deals with the powers that be because our role is to do power differently collaboratively, with, not over. And so we find ourselves at our own crossroads of temptation, of abandonment in the wilderness of our deepest need. And in those moments when we are forced to consider our motives, what is it that drives you? What is it that motivates me? those moments of crisis and decision in our lives. I wonder what choices we will make. Can we, I wonder, be so shaped by our engagement with the story of Christ that our natural inclination will be to follow his path of rejecting power over others? Can we embrace the new way of being human that Jesus opens before us? For Jesus, this meant a move, 
a decisive change. And Matthew symbolizes this change for us by telling us that Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. Did you notice in the reading that straight after the temptation, Jesus left Nazareth and went to Capernaum? This is more than just a decision to relocate to the seaside. It's more than a minor detail from Jesus's backstory. Rather, it's a move from the center to the margins, from the urban center of Nazareth to the fishing community by the shores of Galilee. Matthew has already invited us in his gospel to start paying attention to the places where Jesus lives. He's been giving us quotations from the prophets to help us interpret these geographical signifiers. So if you cast your mind back through the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel, I, I, I hope you know them. If you don't, go away and reread them afterwards. We find him starting with the, the Holy Family going to Bethlehem, the city of David, a place for a king to be born. And Matthew told us that this was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Matthew quotes Micah. So he starts in Bethlehem, the city of kings. Then we find Jesus traveling to Egypt to escape the murderous intentions of Herod. Something again, Matthew tells us, is in fulfillment of a prophecy, this time from Hosea, Matthew chapter 2. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So from Bethlehem, city of kings, we go to Egypt and Jesus leaving Egypt, a bit like Moses leaving, leading the people of Israel of old. Then Jesus returns from Egypt and bypasses Bethlehem to spend his childhood years in Nazareth. And Matthew claims that this was so that he, what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is a bit of a mystery, this one, because it's not a quote from anywhere in the Old Testament. And we're not really quite sure what Matthew thinks he's quoting here, but he thinks he's quoting someone. And then we get to Jesus, the adults, at the beginning of his ministry, and he makes his decisive move to the margins, to Capernaum of Galilee. So he's gone from the city of kings to being the new Moses coming out of Egypt, to living in the center of the populous area of Nazareth, and suddenly he goes to the shores of Galilee. And again, Matthew is clear that this is in fulfillment of prophecy, and this time he quotes from Isaiah chapter 9. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the roads to the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. This reading from Isaiah is often part of our Advent readings, where it's used to express the light of Christ coming into a world of darkness at his incarnation. But for Matthew, this isn't a prophecy that's fulfilled at Jesus's birth. Rather, it's fulfilled after Jesus's temptation as he moves to Galilee. Did you notice the slightly strange way Isaiah describes Galilee? He calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. 
because this portion of land was taken from Israel by the foreign empire Assyria about 700 years before Jesus. Jesus moves to disputed territory. He moves to marginal territory. It's barely even Israel. And yet this is where Jesus moves to make his residence as this child born of David's line becomes an adult at the margins of society living in disputed and occupied territory. And it's here in Galilee of the Gentiles that Jesus starts to call followers. This is the ultimate repudiation of the temptation that preceded it. Jesus walks away from any vestiges of claiming power over to start building power with that is going to change the world. And he does so by building power with those who are already excluded and marginalized. The purpose of power is to give it away. Israel of the first century was an occupied country. The temptation to raise a rebellious army, to storm Jerusalem and claim David's throne is going to return to haunt Jesus and his followers again and again as they make their way through the gospel. And Matthew is clear. It begins at the margins and it stays at the margins. The path of Christ is never a path of power over others. It is always a path of peace and justice and righteousness and going to those whom others might deem unclean or unfit and building power with them. So Jesus calls people to repent of their authoritarian dreams and to discover that the true power to transform the world is found only in collaboration with others. I uh, don't, please don't take offence to this regular congregation of Bloomsbury. I sometimes describe Bloomsbury to people as an eccentrically central church. And what I mean by this is that we are a church not only in the centre of the city, but we are eccentric also. We are a church that is at the margins. Geographically, we may not have moved to the margins. But in so many other ways, we are a community that seeks to build power with those whom others might want to exclude. And I believe that we do so in obedience to the call and example of Jesus. We model in our community the call of Jesus to share power with those whom others would disregard. We reject the temptations to power and glory and instead seek the glory of service to others. And as we start a new year, my prayer for us is that we will continue to live out this year our vision statement of provoking faith in the heart of London as we take our place alongside others in bringing the world as it should be into being in the midst of the world as it is. And my challenge for all of us is to recognise that this is not going to happen by accident. Jesus had to move from one place to another to start building his kingdom through calling his eccentric disciples. And there are, will be things that we are called to do which will involve change for us too. 
Maybe we will commit ourselves to becoming more involved in the work that Bloomsbury does with London citizens in addressing the needs of the most vulnerable in our city. Or maybe we will commit ourselves to taking the training offered by the Welcome Directory to find out how we can welcome those who have been released from prison. Or maybe we'll attend the Churches Together in Westminster meeting that's coming up in a couple of weeks to find out how communities of faith in our area are responding to the impact of increasing need faced by so many with the current cost of living crisis. Or maybe we'll just simply commit ourselves to being at church more regularly, being present to one another in fellowship and community as we build a community of welcome and inclusion. In the name of Christ and for his sake, we are called to live and work collaboratively across borders and boundaries we are called to find allies in unexpected places and to treat the other as our sister and brother. We are called to share in the mystery that is power held through powerlessness for the transformation of the world for good. This is the call of Christ on us at the beginning of this year. Let's see where it takes us as we journey into the new year together. May God bless you all and may God be with us as we seek to follow the example of his son, Jesus Christ, empowered by the spirit who is with and within each one of us. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, as we confront a new year, we gather with mixed feelings. For some, there will be a sense of relief that the more painful and upsetting memories of 2022 can be safely consigned to the dustbin of history. Others will be nervous and anxious, worried that the uncharted paths of 2023 will herald fresh uncertainties, banished hopes, and unrealized dreams. Recently, we have sung about the hopes and fears of all the years centered on the Christ child. And as we enter a new year, we take comfort that the hopes and fears of all the years, and particularly of this one, will again be centered in Christ and through that trusting, guiding hand. Lord, in seasons of joy and in seasons of brokenness. Teach us not to lose hope, but to cherish the assurance of your abiding presence. Therefore, let us be emboldened and take comfort and encouragement with a few words from Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and petition with thanksgiving Present your requests to God. Lord of immeasurable love, be pleased to hear these our prayers. So let us remember now those with specific personal needs. For those struggling with the pain of bereavement. For others consumed with bitterness following the trauma of abuse. For the many families experiencing the despair of unemployment, 
for others struggling to make ends meet in the present financial climate. For those who fear the raw perils of winter, whether it be freezing conditions, social isolation, or simply the long dark nights, we remember the homeless, the destitute, the sick in mind and body, and for all who yearn for emotional support. Lord of compassion and healing, be pleased to hear these are prayers. But against this brooding melancholy of need, it is good to take encouragement and inspiration from specific local events, such as the churches together in Westminster's forthcoming conference, coping with a torn safety net, the church's response to increasing need. Lord, may we keep that safety net very firmly in our sights. And even with our limited resources here, may we still aspire to be that servant church grounded in that critical sacrament of care. And let us pray for a healing of those nations, some endlessly engulfed in bitter strife. Our thoughts and prayers so often feel grossly inadequate in the face of a brutal torrent of mindless violence and bloodshed, which we learn of daily in our news bulletins. Loving God, we continue to pray for the Ukraine and think of them today, which is their Christmas day. And also for conflict resolution in other parts of the globe too, some of which impact on members of our own congregation here. Creator God, in your mercy, look charitably upon a fallen world. Finally, as we face the daunting challenges and opportunities of the new year, teach us to respond and to grow those fruits of the Spirit, kindness, forgiveness, faith, hope, and love. Eternal God, Grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the living of these days. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.